Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to episode 97 of the Feeling Film Podcast. This is week two of our Olympic movie coverage. And with me, ready to pass... Shoot and score is my best friend and co-host Aaron. What's up, you Steve? I uh, I'm here. I'm here. I got nothing, but I'm here. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you're here. It's good because if this was just me talking, I don't think anybody would want to listen. And if you couldn't tell already, that was probably my worst, best something version of a Boston accent. Uh, hopefully, that's the last you'll hear of it, and we can just move on from there. But anyway. <laughs> If you didn't know already, this episode we are covering the 2004 Disney film Miracle that tells the story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team and their dream to take down those reigning international juggernauts, the Russians. Before we hit the ice, though, let's rewind a little bit and catch up, shall we? Aaron, what have you been up to this week, my friend? Well, we just had a little bit of a conversation off the air about video games, and I don't want to totally rehash that, but I've been doing a lot of video gaming in the last several days, so that's been a lot of fun. I also have worked my way through the live-action Oscar-nominated short films. I know that you and I are both going to be watching all 15 of the short films, and we've got a review that we're gonna we're going to put out. So, listeners, you can expect that here in the next week or week and a half or so. Um, it'll be all 15, and both Patrick and I's takes on all of them. So I've been working my way through those. And I also saw a movie in theaters this week, one that I know you're probably dying to uh, go to the theater and see, and that's Fifty Shades Freed. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm holding my collective breath of uh, anticipation <laughs> for that one. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. My bad. Yes. Well, that <laughs> seems to be the common uh, reaction to people when you talk about this movie. Interestingly, it still almost makes $40 million in its opening weekend. So somebody out there is going to see this movie, Patrick. Um, and I think that a lot of the people that are claiming they hate it may actually be in that group. That being said, I have watched all of these, and I will admit it's mostly for research purposes. It's it's more than that. I, I haven't read the books. I don't have like a strong desire or feeling for these either way. I felt the first one was okay. It wasn't like completely terrible. The second one was pretty bad. And this one I was pleasantly surprised by. You're going to read and hear a lot of stuff out there, listeners, about this movie, and I'm not going to try and dissuade you from taking other opinions on it. I'm simply going to say this. If you have enjoyed the first two films, by some measure, if you have read the books and enjoyed the books, I think that you will also enjoy this film. The thing about Fifty Shades Freed that really makes it better for me, Patrick, is that while this is a relationship, these two main characters that are is really based in a some form of submissive dominant type kind of relationship, this movie gives our female character Anastasia plenty of agency, and she is a powerful woman in her own right who is making her own decisions. Um, that is showcased multiple times throughout the film. That th this is not about a man who has complete control over a woman and he's dominating her and she has no choice in the matter. 
this is a give and take relationship and there are some genuine acts of love that are depicted in it. Now, as a movie, it is also pretty bad. <laughs> like just just from a standpoint of like watching a story play out, it's kind of like billed as a thriller. I don't know how this series went from romantic sex softcore porn to thriller whatever I, I don't know it's i guess that's what happens when you make movies and books out of fan fiction because that's essentially what the 50 shades series did regardless it's not that great um overall i had a fine experience with it though i thought it was pretty funny and i feel like it's one of those films that is funny on purpose they they say things the dialogue is written in a way that it knows you're gonna groan at it and it kind of is doing that with you uh, and yeah, so if you've liked the previous movies, you're going to like this one. If you have a problem with the content in the previous movies, stay far away because there is plenty of, if not more, of that same um, type of content. So that's my quick thoughts on Fifty Shades, and I'm ready to carry on. So what about you? <laughs> well, what have you been up to, my friend? Well, first of all, let me just let me just say that I was reading one of the threads after your review dropped this last week, and I can, I can just say this. And I, I don't think I've said this to you yet. I really appreciate what you bring in terms of as much objectivity to um, to films that you don't necessarily agree with on a personal level, but that you can find some critical objectivity to it. And so just reading through the thread, it's divisive on a number of levels, not only from uh, – I mean we can speak obviously to maybe a faith-based type thing if you have a moral objection to it. But from a film objection, I know that there are people out there that just couldn't appreciate it from a film standpoint. But I like the fact that you've given some substance to and some value to it on some level. I mean, in a sense, you're living out what feeling film is really born from is a sense of finding some positive honesty in it. And while I personally will not go see the movies, I don't have a personal uh, desire to see them at all. I can appreciate what you're doing. And, and that definitely shows a lot about what you're doing growing as a film critic so so good job there bud i appreciate that why thank you kudos to aaron ding uh, as for me i took a step back and was inspired by a recent post uh by one of our listeners jacob who has been going through i don't know if he completed but he was going through the before trilogy the richard link letter oh he trilogy. completed it that's a, okay. that's another thread on our discussion group that got pretty yeah. long yeah yeah, and again, I just I love the organic growth of our group and, and and just the honest conversations that people are having. It's it it says so much about the diversity of what the group brings to to our feeling film culture, and it, and I'm greatly appreciative of it. But what that did for me was it caused me to kind of look through Richard Linklater's filmography. Now this guy's done a ton of work. And I've slowly kind of gotten acclimated to it. There are movies out there that I've seen, movies that I haven't. The Before Trilogy is one that I haven't. But there was one that popped up on IMDb that I was really intrigued by. Because Richard Linklater, he's been known to be a guy who, uh, I think uh, I think one of our contributors, Don, I think he mentioned that he has the ability to write good dialogue in terms of making the actors feel like they're real people. So it's like listening to real conversation. So I found a movie back in two, from, that came out in 2011 called Bernie, and I had not heard of it. It was actually uh, – I was, I was going through the list. Um, a friend of mine had said, hey, you should check this out. It's got Jack Black in it. It's got Matthew McConaughey. Uh, it's got uh, Shirley MacLaine. And I was like, okay, that should be interesting. A nice little trio of, of actors. 
And it tells a story of this guy named Bernie Teed. And I didn't know this going into it, but it's sort of a documentary biopic combination. Uh, Linklater uses a series of interviews with, I believe they're, at this point I haven't done enough research to know if they're actual people that were, uh, that were really a part of this, this guy's story, or if they were actors portraying the people, uh, in, in this story. But anyway, it tells the story of this guy named Bernie Teed, who is a mortician, or as he likes to refer to himself, an assistant funeral director, (laughs) as he says in the movie, we, they, that's not cool to call us morticians. We're funeral directors. Does this film take place over a weekend by chance? No, it does not. <laughs> You'd think so, right? It does involve dead people, but it's not that particular movie about a guy named Bernie. He's actually alive the whole time. But anyway, he the, the story is told from the vantage point of these people that live in this, uh, in this small town in East Texas. And so they're recounting this guy's life and they're talking about him in the past tense, so you don't really know what's going on because his story is being told and it's being shown at the same time. So I'm, you're kind of intrigued what's happened to him, what's going on. Uh, come to find out, he befriends a widow, played by Shirley MacLaine. Her husband has died, and he becomes um, not, not, not romantically involved, although that's sort of asked about in these interviews and hinted at. He's also accused of being a homosexual. So, I mean, you can kind of get an idea of just sort of the secondhand conversations that sort of lead the story. But it's about his relationship with her and how he befriends her, how they become, uh, they become companions. And during the second act, there's an interesting turn with their relationship where he becomes kind of a subservient, a servant to her. And so there's an event that takes place that leads to um, a, 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 not to spoil it, that leads to an event that kind of finishes out the film. And I know that's so ambiguous and that doesn't really give people much to go on. But what I wanted to hit on was the fact that I didn't really know what to think about this movie until that second act and until the events of his life really started to uh, be revealed to us as an audience. It's fascinating to me. It's, it's a beautifully made film. The, the East Texas culture is articulated beautifully through these small town interviewees that have this incredible dialogue with, uh, with the, with the camera they are they they come up with these amazing just southern drawl expressions that just crack you up the way they describe Shirley MacLaine's character because she was a mean uh just SOB as someone had said to her said that she she owned a bank uh that her late husband had had been in charge of and she eventually took over after he died and I can't remember specifically what how the guy described it but he basically said that if she didn't like you, she would uh, she would she would cut a hole deep in your uh, deep in your heart that you could actually uh, build a house in it or something like that. It, it's just bizarre kind of dialogue. But what I enjoyed the most about this was the this performance of Jack Black. Now take him for what you will. He's definitely got a specific kind of acting prowess. The movies that I've seen him in, I really enjoy him in. But this relationship or this character that that he portrays, who's actually based on a real person, 
comes across as incredibly sincere, incredibly touching. And it's that attitude, it's that personality that is a caveat to one of the main plot points of the movie. Um, he's very, he's not just likable, he's adored. Um, he, he cares deeply about not just doing his job well, but caring for those who have lost a loved one. He was really just a sincere gentleman to these older ladies who were losing their, their husbands. And so the people that are being interviewed talk about that. They talk about how he came into the, the business and how he was just a natural at it, how he had this way with people. He would, he would sing. Uh, there were moments when someone during a funeral would just end abruptly with the eulogy and nobody knew what to do. And so he'd come up and start playing Amazing Grace just to kind of save the whole moment. And so the, the film is riddled with these, these moments where we, we fall in love with him as a character and so there's an event that takes place in this third act that you're going, oh my gosh, and it creates this conflict of like, okay, how do I feel about him? And so the conflict that the people in this town that that he's a part of, uh, that they feel, you feel with them as an audience. Matthew McConaughey plays the district attorney in the town, and he is just hysterical. You know, he's got that Texas accent going for him already, and he's just as uppity as all these other guys. But it's just a wonderful movie, and it's one that I I didn't know that I'd like until it started kind of getting its its wheels under it, and then to find out that it's based on an actual person that this is this is a, a biopic. Uh, the the actual one of the writers of the story it was based on an article in Texas Monthly, but uh, so it was sort of co-written. The story was written by this guy named Skip Hollinsworth, and then of course Richard Linklater put his screenplay touch to it, but. It's really, really good, and um, I highly recommend anybody that likes Jack Black as an actor. This is an interesting, uh, an interesting take on him as an actor. It's kind of like your Will Ferrell, Stranger Than Fiction, uh, Jim Carrey, uh, The Truman Show, that kind of thing. It's kind of him using his comedic timing and his comedic talents in a more restrained role. So it's it's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. Well, that's definitely not one I ever even knew existed, uh, despite my really appreciation for Linkletter. So neat find there. Yeah, it was it was really, and I was I was glad to find it. Well, before we get into it, let's go ahead and just give our spoiler alert. Of course, this movie came out in two thousand four. You know the events if you've read any kind of history on the Olympics or the U.S. hockey team. So we're we've already spoiled the ending without really. Meaning to, but, you know, whatever. But as far as the movie's concerned, we're going to be a completely spoiler-filled episode as always. So you've been warned. If you haven't seen it, go back and watch and then come back and join the conversation. That being said, Aaron, this is one of those rare times that you have not seen a movie that I have that we're discussing on the podcast. So I get the privilege of asking you, how was your first-time movie experience with this? Well, you're right. It is one of the very rare times that I have not seen the movie, and you have. Um, and that's it's pretty surprising, honestly, because it is a sports biopic and a, a film based on a, a true events in the sporting world that you would think that I would have seen this because I really enjoy that kind of movie and those, those stories. I, I love documentaries like that as well. For me, I'm going to start with my one-word takeaway, and... That takeaway word is miraculous. 
And I know, I know, I know, okay, I know that it was easy to go there, but it has to be that word because this should not have happened. This event was miraculous. And so at the risk of kind of stealing Al Michaels' thing, he nailed it uh, when he made that famous line at the end of that game. So as a movie, Patrick, this is as inspirational of a movie as I think I might have ever seen. It, It's all about accomplishing something as more than just individuals. And that is why I'm drawn to it. I'm drawn to it because it's about a team. It's about a team that's not just out there trying to win for the money or for the team that pays them. They're trying to win for pride. They're trying to win to prove it to themselves. They're trying to win for a country. And of course, all of the other things that came along with this specific victory, the Vietnam water, Vietnam war, Watergate, uh, the Soviet Union, Cold War, the energy crisis. There was so much going on in the country that this specific act, this sporting event, kind of healed in a way, at least momentarily. Um, and I think that this film captures it in as good of a way as it could have been done, to be honest with you. I really, really love it. I think that it is immersive. I think that Kurt Russell is an absolute amazing actor, and I was just shocked by him. He carries this film, and this is one of the most accurate depictions of a true story that we ever have gotten, especially when it comes to sporting events. It's got a a large amount of actual dialogue and true quotes, which are phenomenal, by the way. I could sit and just quote this movie. This this whole movie could just make up a book of leadership and inspirational quotes. I really, truly cannot think of a better sports biopic. I sat after this movie and kind of just chewed on it. Um, once I wiped the many tears out of my eyes, and I tried to think, you know, is there a reason that this movie is not my favorite sports biopic, and I, I can't find a better one. I really, really can't. I, it, is, it was that powerful for me. It's amazing. I'm kind of sad that it took me this long to watch it, but I think watching it during the Winter Olympics here in 2018 definitely is a cool kind of a boost nostalgic-wise, and I love it. I'm, I'm so glad that we chose to do this one. It is a wonderful, wonderful film. It really is, and um, this is – I, I – shamelessly admit this is probably my my seventh or eighth time watching it uh and i i watch it every every four years for sure during the winter games uh because it's appropriate but occasionally i will pop it in when i want to feel inspired and i i struggled with the one word takeaway because there were two that came to mind and i wanted i i don't know if i want to officially pick one over the other because this first one I think is a nice irony. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but the first word I'd like to probably tack onto this is unbelievable because I said the same thing about I, Tanya last week, but for completely different reasons because everything about this movie and the surprisingly high accuracy of the events that took place 
all feel too good to be true. Like there's no way that this happened because I feel too inspired by this. This must be fake. This must have been made up because the director and all of the creative team behind this movie knew exactly what they wanted us to feel. So they put this scene in there and then come to find out, oh no, that scene, that actually took place with a few little tweaks here and there. And so the movie could be accused of being overly inspirational or cheesy or whatever. But the fact that these events, the fact that the events that we connect to the most throughout the movie happen in real life, take that unbelievable and bring it into a sense of wow. And so the the word that I'm going to probably stick to is unified because I think that's at the heart of what this movie is about. You mentioned all the stuff going on during the uh, during the previous decade before the 1980 Olympics. And to me, it was so well put out there during the opening credits that we get to see kind of glimpses of here's what's going on. Here's the atmosphere. Here's the culture. Here's what's happening. Uh, the, 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 the country is being shaken up for a number of reasons. And then we drop into that very first scene. And so throughout this entire movie, I think that's the word that is threaded throughout the themes, throughout the personalities, and the whole entire story of Miracle is a sense of being unified. And for the Olympics, even as I'm watching the, the first couple of days of the, uh, of the Olympic Games in South Korea, I can't help but attach a sense of patriotism to my country. I don't know half of these competitors, but I find myself fist pumping when an American uh, lands a jump off of the half pipe or when I see a figure skater land the uh, a, a triple axle which by the way tonight the first American woman to land the triple axle happened tonight or today or tomorrow whenever we are in South Korea so things like that in the Olympics in the Olympics yes in the just to clarify yes not yes so the first American woman in the Olympics landed a triple axle on night and things like that that I would normally never care about because I'm not interested in those particular sports. I care about them because the word American is, ta- is attached to them. No need to apologize for that because I think the Olympics as a whole do that to people that want to fall into those kinds of uh, those kinds of things. And Miracle does that for me as well. It makes me excited about an event not just that event, but the event of the Olympics that brings a country together, whether real or imagined, and allows me for two weeks to cheer for people and be a part of a community, uh, in this case a country, to celebrate competition, to celebrate a unified uh, look and feel, a, a sense of community with people that not only love the Olympics and love American competition, but also love that sense of of being together and so miracle does that for me on a whole it's incredibly enjoyable it's incredibly inspirational the rewatchability is like way up there for me obviously and so the all these elements bring to me a sense of like that's a great film when i watched it the first time in the theater i remember wanting to stand up and clap. And I almost did that again on this watch because there's just something about it that makes me 
inspired and makes me happy. So I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> it makes me incredibly happy. It's always a, it's always a fear. Like, okay, I love it. Is he going to love it? And I'm sure you feel that same way when I watch something for the first time that you're absolutely like gung ho about. I, I did that. I actually, I actually did cheer and I looked around the apartment and I was like, Ooh, I'm by myself. There's nobody here. Like I'm not, who am I talking to? I was like, I was engaged. Like I was actively rooting and cheering and, and I knew it was going to happen. Right. But mm-hmm. it didn't matter because you're right. It, it, you're right. It evokes that sense of patriotism and that feeling of unity with, I mean, even, even with fictional, you know, characters on a movie screen, just like it does when we're watching the Olympics, when they're real people, just hundreds of thousands of miles away in another country. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in your, in your opening about two things, leadership and how this movie, if it were written in a book, could be just a whole book on leadership. And then you mentioned Kurt Russell's portrayal of Herb Brooks. And I wanted to touch a little bit on his character because he's really the he's really the the anchor of this movie. It's it's a movie equally as much about him as it is about the team as a whole. Uh, he's the one that brings them together. And there were several character traits that that I picked up on as I was walking through his character specifically. Uh, he comes across first as innovative, and he. At the very beginning, he walks in to, I guess, get interviewed for the head coaching uh, position for this hockey team. And Great he mentioned, opening, by the way. It really, right really. In, right in it. There's no wasting time. It's like, bam, we are finding a coach. We're moving forward. Right. And you've gotten a little bit of that backstory from the opening credits of what's going on. And so he, he walks in and he says, essentially... I'm going to change things up and as part of his interview. And he, he mentions coming up with a hybrid style of play that combines Canadian and Russian hockey styles. Now, we don't need to know what's not working about the U.S. team. We don't really care about that. But the first thing he mentions is about this, this hybrid style of play. And if you're in the room and you're a member of the of the uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee or whoever it is that's hiring him, how does that come across to you? Do you feel like that's a strong character quality of him as a coach to do something like that, to mention that? Oh, I think that it wouldn't go over well at all. And I actually, it, it immediately made me think about a current situation that the United States is facing with its soccer program because the exact kind of similar situation is in play where we're having to bring on a new coach. We're having to bring on a new president of the Federation because our national team has just for the first time in decades failed to make the world world cup. That's going to take place. They failed to qualify and all of this talent, all these things that had been, had worked once upon a time are no longer working. And so it really made me think about how, Sporting events in general, sports, go through these cycles, right? There's cycles of dominance by teams. The NBA is in another one of these and is a great example for this. With the advent of the three-point line, slowly but surely evolved and you came to teams like Golden State Warriors that are dominating right now, and they play a completely different style of basketball than the NBA is used to. The NBA used to be 
20 years ago, 30 years ago, a bruiser league. It was all about the big guys. Down low. Bang, bang. Now, it's run and gun and shoot three-pointers on the fast break. So the game changes and evolves, and now everyone has to kind of catch up. And some coaches, some teams, some, some you know, general managers and, and office, uh, offices, uh, management offices are able to do that. And I feel like that's the place that America was in at this time. And so that's where I go when I see him walking in. I think of him as someone like that, someone like a Steve Kerr saying, you know what? No, this is the offense I'm going to run. And it's different. It's unique. We're going to try something that hasn't been done. And it's going to it's going to sound weird because it's not something we're used to. But this is what's going to work. And I I really got that vibe from Herb. Um, And so I think that it takes a lot of guts. And for me, right away, I saw guts in him because he, you have to take a risk and you take that risk knowing darn well that you're likely to get a bunch of side eye from people in the room and that you may not get the job. <laughs> you know, and he didn't seem like he, I mean, he felt like he was very, he had a lot of integrity right off the bat. He believed in what he thought was the best way he said that he made it very clear he was not going to back down just to get the job. Um, and I really appreciated that from him right away. Right. That said a lot about what his motive was and the fact that he didn't just want the job. Although we find out later that this was a dream for him was to coach the team. He didn't just want to coach. He wanted to win. And I think that said a lot about the expectations of him versus this committee of, of people is that they were looking for someone I think they even said, you know, we want some, we, we don't want to lose face. And he makes a comment, well, you kind of went like you lost like 6-1 or something like that to the Norwegian team back in 76. I don't think you can get much worse than that. And I mean, he really just he bring he manages expectations in that moment by saying, "Look, I'm going to be the best you've got because you can't get any worse." And I and he he, he says that without actually saying it. But he also gives them, I think, from our standpoint, a sense of hope and saying, look, if we know that what we've been doing isn't working, if we know that we, we're not going to use all-stars, which I don't think up to that point they were using. And by the way, let me just say this. Uh, this year, I think, is the first year in a – I don't know in how long that the U.S. is using amateur hockey players, which I think is fantastic. I like the fact that, that the, the hockey team – is is using guys from college and and guys that are not part of the NHL. I think that I don't know if that levels the playing field, but I think it speaks to the true nature of what the Olympics are, which is an amateur sport as opposed to necessarily, you know, pulling away from, you know, the NBA or Major League Baseball or even the NHL. And so it'll be interesting to see what the US team does with with college kids and 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 young guys like that as opposed to your more professional all-star type uh, type hockey players. But that being said, he makes that he makes that argument and is able to not really convince them, but just kind of put them in their place and say, "Okay, I guess that's good enough for us." <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I thought that same thing about the fact that he's he's relying on these amateur athletes, right? And I guess I I wanted to briefly sidetrack now because you brought that up but i have a different take on that so i i see it two ways one i enjoy watching amateur athletes more i prefer to watch them because i feel like they have to work harder at their sports sometimes 
because they're not doing them as part of their job. They're not getting paid for them in many cases, most cases. However, on the other side of that, I, I still kind of am a little bit, I, I don't feel like it's an accurate representation of the best athletic ability we have on the planet. And some parts of me really wish we could see that. You know, I wish I could see some of the NBA guys in the dunk contest in, in the high jump or, or whatever the case may be. Like, I, I feel like they have that level of talent and athleticism. Um, and and it, it's nice. It would be nice to know who the actual best of the best is and not just who the best of the non-professional crop is. I agree. And, and so it's, it, but I see it, but I mean, it could go both ways. You know what I mean? Right. And in, and in this particular case with the team sport, I would be more inclined to stick with amateurs because he makes a fantastic Ooh, argument. Point. One of the things that he, the big thing that he talks about is he says, I'm not looking for the best. I'm looking for the guys who are, can, can work together as a team. And that's one of the big, he says, big I'm not looking for the best. I'm looking for the right ones. Exactly. Yep. Because the point of what he's doing is to win the gold medal with a team. Can you, can you ha- I mean, the guys that are out, I don't know of any professional track stars, you know, guys that are competing. There's no official like national track association. There's, there's, there's none of that. The, the only professional sports that I know of, um, are, are team sports. You know, you might have the USTA for the tennis association or golf and stuff like that. So you can maybe make some of those arguments like, well, what about, you know, what about the professional golfers and the professional tennis players? That's a conversation probably for another day and another podcast or another time. But in the case of team sports, I think that's really where the 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 team dynamic shines as opposed to the individuals. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that the movie highlights that. You know, one of the true things that happened was the U.S. All-Stars got throttled by the Russian national team. And for probably the exact reasons that the movie argues, that they they were all talent and no unification. They had nothing really to gain by beating the Russians because these guys already had their money. They already had their fame. So what was really what was there to 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 really play for? And that's what Herb, I think, was really trying to bring was this cohesive unit that had a reason to to be there. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But I wanted to move on to this other character trait, the second one of him being honest and unapologetic. Now, something that deviates from the actual story uh, and one of the pretty big moments in the film is that he basically chooses the 26 guys that he's eventually going to cut down to 20 the first day. Like he dismisses close to what a hundred other guys and it didn't really happen that way. In actuality, he did work with other coaches and they spent like a week or two really vetting these guys. But the spirit of what he was doing was still intact. Like he was taking notes. He was making sure that he was trying to get these right guys. And I believe there were some folks that when he got down to the final 26, there were kind of head scratchers because there were guys out there that were like, well, he's clearly the better athlete, but he chose these 26. And so for the sake of talking specifically about the film, this first day, he gets it down to 26. And what that told me was that he knew what he needed. He got it. And he maximized the time that he had to get them ready for the Olympics. And he faced some hostility early on. 
I mean, there's that scene right outside after he finishes that first day by, I think, the president. And he says, okay, let's take a step back. Why don't you come up to the offices and we'll go through these as a, you know, as a, as a committee. And he's like, no, I can't do that. That's not what you hired me to do. It goes back to that, uh, that attitude that we see in his interview. Um, and I wanted to ask you, one, how did, how, how did you feel about that? And do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I don't necessarily think it's a good or bad thing. I don't think we can, I don't think we can say it's a good or bad thing except in hindsight. And it sure. is, in this case, it was a good thing Yes, uh, because of the result. Now, had he done this and not been as absolutely prepared as he was, then it could have really gone badly. And we could have just gotten thumped as bad or worse than anybody else. But he was committed to his plan and he that prepared is the word I go to. He knew what he was doing. He was ready for this. And he chose he didn't choose these guys on a whim, Patrick. It's not like he was flipping a coin. Right. Right. He was looking for very, very specific traits. And he told them that throughout the film as he was talking to various athletes, he would tell them why he chose them. And it, that's what he got. He was building this thing with something in mind. And so I think it was a great, great deal. Um, I, I love it. I loved everything about this scene. I'm so glad that they changed it, to be honest, because I, I don't think it changes the overall tone or the, the, the truth behind how Herb operated, just kind of condensing it for film's sake. And if this this was like the biggest change in the whole movie, I mean, there's almost this whole thing is completely accurate except for this little piece of it, and it just doesn't it doesn't really do anything different. Um, I love how he also tells them right away when they're standing in the rink that first day. He comes down. He says, "I'll be your coach. I won't be your friend. If you need one of those, take it up with Doc or Coach Patrick here." And and then he walks off. And he does that a couple times in the film where he just says something and then he walks away. And I, and I think that goes to your unapologetic point. He knows what he has to say. He believes in it 100% and he doesn't waste words and he doesn't waste time. He gets right to it. But do you think there's some collateral damage when it comes to the – and again, we know this hindsight. The victory, I guess, outweighs what could be a potential danger. But at that time, do you feel like there's a – detriment or some kind of negative impact to these kids i mean coaches i mean i'm not saying that coaches need to be people's best friends that's obviously not true there are coaches out there that are like the nick sabans who are like <laughs> i'm your coach if you want a friend you know you got a roommate or whatever but at the same time i mean as a player i, I don't know if that would motivate me to want to play my hardest except i just don't want to get cut I don't know if that's enough for these players or if it I mean that do you think that inspires the players or do you think it scares them more than anything? I think it inspired enough of the players that he chose that had the personality traits that could be inspired by that to be successful. Yeah. I think that you have to coach the team you have. He was able to pick the team he had. Many leaders and this this is this goes beyond sports. Leaders in general, I faced this when I was in the military. Not every sailor that worked for me was the same. And I had to learn real quick, like, I have a leadership style, and it's not going to work for everybody. And I've faced this challenge where this person over here needs me to be kind of a different leader. And 
I think that there is a time and a place for that, but it all is about the end goal and achieving the end goal. And if you can get your guys to buy into your style, ultimately that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's successful. If it doesn't work, if it didn't work, if Herb couldn't get it to work, then Herb would not be successful. He would be a failure and we could criticize him for that. But I think that the fact that he was able to do enough to get them to buy in, there's actually, since you brought that up, the the guys actually were talking about that um, in an interview, and I, th- I thought I wrote some of it down. But they talked about how he was – oh, here it is. I found it. Rob McClenahan, who was one of the, the players, right, who played for him for seven years, both in college, in the NHL, and then also on the on the team that won. He says – in all that time that he played for him, that one word defined their relationship, and that was fear. When he passed away, there were hundreds of players at his funeral, and every one of them would tell you they'd play for him tomorrow. He was a winner, and that's what you play sports for, McClanahan said. But candidly, I was afraid of him. And the interview goes, it's a great interview. If you seek it out, it's, it's, it's a good one to read. Um, it's right after um, Coach Brooks passed away. But it talks about, goes into what you're saying about how, you know, like there was there was a little bit of softening over the years, but it never became much. He never became their friends. He maintained this persona in the same way that a Nick Saban maintains this persona. College players who go to Duke, who go to Michigan State, they go back to their college They go into their professional sports and they talk all the time about their experiences with Coach Tom Izzo and Coach Mike Krzyzewski, how they were mentors and how they became this huge influence in their lives and they taught them how to be men. Guys don't talk like that about Nick Saban. But Nick Saban has the titles too. And I I feel like it's just a matter of differing styles and a matter of finding the guys that you can motivate by your style and putting them together. That's a fantastic point. And it really comes down to what it is that you want. And I think that said a lot about what these kids wanted. It wasn't that they didn't want to be cut. It's that they wanted to win. And whatever that motivation was, the end result was that they wanted to win and they wanted to do whatever it takes. Now we get two particular scenes that I thought were pretty fantastic, not of him softening, but I think more of him being consistent, but being that consistent coach uh, one is when well actually there's there's three there's one with Jim Craig uh, there's his relationship with Jim Craig I think is one that I latch my latch onto the most uh, just the way in which uh, Jim refuses to take the test <laughs> and and he goes are you mad because I didn't ref- you know I refused to take the stupid test and he goes no I want you to be the guy that didn't take the test you know that refused to and then there's the cutting of Ralph Cox. I think that moment was just incredibly sincere. You could see it in his eyes how he didn't want to do it, but he had to. It was a coach's decision, not a friend's decision. And then there was the um, there was the scene with um, was it O'Callaghan, who's he's sitting. They, he's traveled with the team to Lake Placid. He's got the the busted leg, and he's sitting there on his crutches and he's just looking around. He's on the ice. And coach and coach talked. I know. Don't start crying. Now. I'm not gonna lie to you. I man cried. I, if you were, I was texting you, so there's proof. Yeah. But like, I lost it three or four times. That was one of them. And so the moments that you cried are the moments that we see coach 
Brooks being Coach Brooks, but a sincere Coach Brooks, an honest Coach Brooks, because what we saw was that he was always their coach, but he cared about them. And that's that's what I think is the real interesting thing, is that you can be a Nick Saban, and you can be a Herb Brooks, and care about your team, and care about your players. Because I think there's a sense of, if you're mean, and you've, and you're, <laughs> look, I feared my dad, <laughs> and I fear my God Almighty, but I know that both of those individuals care about me, and love me deeply. And I think that that's how Kurt Russell, as Herb Brooks, portrayed the character, portrayed this guy, was one who cared deeply about his players, but that's who they were to him, his players. None of them were his kids. He never said it was like losing a son. No, he never stepped over that line. And that's really interesting to me because I think as an audience, sometimes we want that. And that would have hit into the cheesy factor for me. And that would have gone into the more insincere. And that's one of the words that I've really pulled out from him is Kurt, or, uh, Herb Brooks was sincere. He was, he was consistent, he was honest, and he was sincere in everything that he did. Um, he was also very aggressive. And I think there were maybe honestly sincere. Yeah. I knew you were going to see you that. Knew I was going to go there. <laughs> His name wasn't Conrad though. You know, bye <laughs> bye Brooksy. <laughs> we're going to miss you. So anyway, <laughs> sorry to derail that, com- that, that portion of the conversation, uh, unintentionally. Uh, the last, the last big, character trait and one that we've kind of touched on is this aggressive nature that he has and and i say aggressive probably in the most sincere sense there's one time that i think he is not and that's with his wife uh the scene where he is watching game film and she's telling him that uh he's got to pick up one of the kids and he's just completely distracted and you can just see her getting just incredibly annoyed with him. The conversation after that, she's laying on the bed and he's like, he basically says, I've, I've got to do this. Ever since I stopped playing, this is what I've wanted to do. And I can't do this without you being with me on it. And you know me, I'm a sucker for these husband-wife relationships where the wife isn't just a rah-rah cheerleader, but she's really got some roundedness to her. And that scene really was a great pivotal moment for for me with their relationship because it told me that he needed her as much as she needed him. He needed her to support him. And he up and apologized. He said, I'm sorry. In his own way, he said, look, I'm sorry that I didn't talk to you about this. And to me, that was probably the softest part of what we saw of Herb Brooks. And it was appropriate because he wouldn't talk to her like he talked to his players. That wouldn't have made sense. So to see that side of him and to see that he can be vulnerable with someone, I think gave him a lot more roundedness. But aside from that, he was incredibly aggressive, not only in his coaching style, but the way in which he just never seemed to apologize for the things that he was doing throughout the film. Yep, absolutely. And that scene that you're talking about was my almost connecting point. It ended up being the same as yours. So we'll just discuss it when we get there. But it, it was very close because I too connect to that kind of relationship in a big way. And it was sincere as well because we see this wife who she knows what she's getting into. Her husband's the coach of a freaking United States national team, right? She knows what comes with that to some extent, but yet the kids got to get home from soccer. There's two of them out there. They got, they got things going on. He's got to help or he's got to at least communicate. And the moment when he says, 
you figure it out. I, I literally like kind of sat back in my chair like, oh my gosh, he's about to get it. Because the film showed us that this wife was not going to take any crap from him. And you knew like, okay, Brooks, you just, that was, that was not the right thing to say. Like you just, you know, we've all been there. Those of us who have been married or have been in serious relationships, we've all said those things. And we've all known when we said them, oops, my bad. And so when that carries on and he goes to her and he asks for, I I just, I love that it comes around to that because he has this wife and kids and they are going to have to make sacrifices too for his pursuit of glory and his passion. But he needs her and his role in that is to always still put her first and to be communicative and to ask for it. And so when he does that, it is so touching and they have such a genuinely great relationship. And I, I love that she comes to see him at the end, you know, when we get to see them and um, coach Patrick's at the stand asking, taking the questions and they're all like wondering where he's at. And he's like, Oh, he's off preparing for the game. He's having coffee with his wife, right. Or hot chocolate or something out on a bench. And I just, man, I loved that moment. And for me, that really directly tied into this one in a big way. But the other thing with him being aggressive that you were talking about is that halftime speech at the Sweden game where he fires everybody up. He walks into that locker room like a spitfire man and he just starts ramming people, blah, 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 blah. Like, what do you want me to do? I want you to learn how to play hockey. You know, like, I mean, he just gets them going. And my favorite thing about it is he goes in, he goes around the room and just, just rapid fire, you know, goes after them all. And then he walks out and as he's walking out, he kind of leans over and you can see coach Patrick kind of grinning and he says, that'll get him going. And coach Patrick says, yep. And there is such a psychological aspect to that aggressiveness. He's not doing it out of anger. He's doing it and he's channeling it in a way that is motivating and that is getting what he needs out of his team at the right time and at the right moment. And it works. And Some people can do that. Some people cannot. And I can tell you, Patrick, as a leader, I struggle with that personally. I have tried tactics like this (laughs) and I have seen them blow up in my face in the workplace. So not everybody can be a Herb Brooks and it takes a unique person. But yeah, the way that he channels that aggressiveness is special. Yeah. And he's using the currency of motivation. And this is something that we hit on earlier when he makes it clear that he's not looking for the most talented guys, but he's looking for the ones that are most motivated to work as a team. And that, that word motivation, that becomes the thing that he uses throughout the film, throughout this journey with his players and with his coaches and with the people that are about to latch on to this team as, as a country that, Somehow the film elevates motivation over cha- over talent. And I wanted to ask you, do you think that motivation is more important than talent? Do you think it's equal? Do you think it's less uh, within the context of the film or in general? I mean, where does motivation, where does its value weigh against talent? Wow, that's big. Um I think you have to have talent to win. 
sports period mm-hmm. there is you don't win talent on desire or i'm sorry you don't win talent i, <laughs> I wish i could win talent <laughs> i would definitely want to that would be pretty awesome <laughs> uh, you don't you don't win competitions on desire alone right you win competitions because you're talented and your desire pushes you over the edge or makes up for a deficiency in talent so I think that it is a critical piece when you are less talented than your opponent. Mm-hmm. I think you have to have both. Yeah. I think that what I have seen as a big sports fan in my life, watching all kinds of different sports from the Olympics to major professional stuff to college stuff to individual sports like tennis, is that the more motivated athletes tend to succeed over ones that are less motivated, but just have talent. Yeah. I, that answer the question at all? (laughs) No, it does. It, it, it makes me think about the, the, um, the philosopher Dominic Toretto, when he is looking into (laughs) a car that doesn't have an engine and he says, what do they hope to race with hopes and dreams? And there's a, there's a very real sentiment there in that I feel like talent is the engine and motivation is the fuel where you have to have that. You have to have both in order to really succeed at the highest level. Put that on a poster. Oh, dude, it's, it's going to be with a nice little landscape. And, uh, you know, I'm going <laughs> to sell it for millions and then we can fund the podcast for life. That'd be good, right? <laughs> hey, you've clearly got talent and making motivational posters. <laughs> Stamp it. I did it. All right. And I, and I think that that's portrayed here. I think the fact is... He didn't pull these kids just out of the gutter. He picked he picked twenty six individuals and and whittled it down to twenty or twenty one uh, to go to Lake Placid for specific reasons. You said earlier that they had a specific reason for being there. Maybe with the exception of of Janik, the the backup goalie, I didn't see much of him, and I kind of feel bad for the for the guy. But you know, he, he won a gold medal, but at the same time, he didn't get any any playing time. Uh, at least not from this film. But what we see is is a guy who recognized talent but knew that that talent needed to be fueled by something. It needed to be pushed. And I think when he saw the NHL All-Star game or the, the All-Stars playing against the Russians, it sort of solidified the fact that the motive for being out there had to be something bigger, had to be something greater than just the the individuals themselves it had to be for the team and ultimately it had to be for the 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 country and you know the players on this team they came together against a common enemy now i'm saying common enemy in air quotes in 2018 because we live in a post-cold war era but at the time the soviets were the common enemy the cold war was very real i was one year old when this event took place so i wasn't much into patriotism at the time but reading back on it and understanding the the weight of it especially with the movies that we've covered over the last probably couple of months that have touched on that um these guys had a motive not just to win the gold but they had kind of a bigger thing as a country that they were going up against this powerhouse that had won the last three olympics they were the champions i mean they could not be defeated and so in a lot of ways, this was a small scale of what the country was feeling as a whole. These are, these are 
18, 20, 22 year old kids being asked to do this, maybe unintentionally or intentionally, do you see positive takeaways from, from this kind of motivation? Okay. Yes. But let's, let's talk a minute about the actual amount of like what this win was, because we've said words like this is the biggest upset in history kind of like, that's the level that this event is. Why is that? Because in 1960, the Americans had won the gold medal. Okay. They had a surprising semifinal win at the time over the defending champion Soviet Union then too. Herb Brooks was the last member cut from that team. He didn't win that gold medal. So speaking of motivation, that was a large part of his. But after that loss, 20 years prior to this, the Soviets dominated and they had taken home four straight gold medals. They were 27, one and one. And they had outscored their opponents 175 to 44. That's insane. On top of that, they had just played the American team, this exact same American team, in America, and whooped us 10 to 3 at Madison Square Garden. So, this truly was one of the biggest wins, the biggest upset wins ever to happen. And beating that enemy was only part of it. I think that if we had defeated Russia and lost the next game, which means we would not have won the gold medal, things might be different. And I don't know that we're it's remembered nearly in the same way. I don't know if it goes on to be quite the hopeful, amazing, dreamlike thing for the whole country. Because defeating Russia and the enemy that you speak of is a part of it, but winning it all is another part of it. I, I just, I feel like that kind of gets forgotten in this story. The fact that it wasn't easy. And in reality, because of the scoring system, right? After we defeated Russia, they took out their frustrations on Sweden and won nine to two a couple days after that. So when we went into our final game against Finland, if we would have lost that, the Soviets would have won the gold again, right? Yes, because the Soviets had won in their semi their next match, 9 to 2. So, points-wise, if we would have lost, they would have had more points than us. And that would have sucked. <laughs> so, the fact that we wouldn't have won the gold medal had we not beaten Finland does get overlooked. And so I think it's more about following through on that win than it is just defeating Russia. Okay, I guess, yeah, I can see that. And I think that the place that I disagree comes from a movie point of view and the fact that the movie puts more emphasis on the Russia win than it does on the gold medal victory. Because... And rightly so, because that was the story. And I think that's the story that Miracle is telling. Al Michaels doesn't say, do you believe in miracles when they win the gold medal? He says, do you believe in miracles when we defeat the Russians? And and I think that 
it's fair to say that this story is trying to remind us of that bigger thing. But I think you're right in that we lost the other portion of that, which was capturing the gold medal, something that we hadn't done in in three Olympics and well, 20 years specifically. Um, and that's it's interesting. I, I, honestly, I didn't know that about the about the the scoring system because that's changed now. You actually have a bronze medal game for the losers of the semifinals. And so yes, so it it was two points for a win, one point for a tie, and we had tied Finland, so we had a tie on our resume. So if Russia went in with two wins, which is four points, and we came out with a win and a tie, that would have been three points. So it's it was a pool pool play based system. So they would have beaten us out on points. Okay. It's not like it is now, which imagine how traumatic that would have been. Yeah. Would that have taken out ever all the wind would have gone out of the sails because we would have beaten them, but we still would have lost to them. Right. Yeah. And that's an, (laughs) as I think about it, I'm going, that would make an interesting movie too, to focus on the, (laughs) to focus on the gold medal, uh, journey as opposed to, because you could tell a fantastic story there and bring up those points, bring up that, that, that point, no pun intended, that we've still got something to prove. You know, you could, you could skip the whole journey of bringing the team together and just talk about the two games or talk about the Olympics themselves and make a whole movie out of that. That would be really interesting because I think that's a story worth telling too. Uh, I think the, the post victory, um, voiceover by her or whoever it was said that they actually came from behind to beat Finland as well, uh, just like they had done the whole the, every single game. every single game, and uh, so I mean that's a yeah it's a story in and of itself. You know another interesting thing with the idea of Russia being our enemy, which they were, um, it, it kind of highlights the nature of athletes at the Olympics. The two goalies actually played the video game Centipede at an arcade together the night before the Olympics. And they couldn't talk to each other, so they just were playing the game together, and they were communicating with nods and, and smiles and laughs. And I think that was just a really cool story, especially considering that said goalie, best in the world for Russia, is the re- got pulled mm-hmm. out of the game, which was a very controversial thing for them, uh, and ultimately didn't play the third quarter, third period which is when they gave up the goals that we used to win the game. Um, and then also at the end, Russia was very congratulatory. The movie actually depicts that in a, you know, in the way it actually happened. They gave respect to the Americans. They didn't complain. They didn't pout about it. They said, good job and congratulated them. And I, I love that sportsmanship aspect of it. And at mm-hmm. a time when tension was so high between the two countries, I think that also was a, it was a very big thing yeah. to see Russia and America on the same ice being friendly to each other. Right. There's a, an unrelated connection that I was making with kind of what's going on in South Korea. One of the big events that happened, especially during the opening ceremonies, was the fact that North and South Korean athletes were, were walking together to represent Korea as a whole, uh, as, the, as the host country. But one of the more interesting things, not more interesting, but equally as interesting, is the the hockey team, the women's hockey team for Korea is the, I don't know if it's the only one, but it's definitely the first time, uh, and it may not be the only team at the Olympics, but it, the North and South Korean players are all playing on the Korean team together. 
and their first game i think it was against switzerland they got throttled eight to nothing but there was a real sense of energy and camaraderie in the crowd and that everybody was completely uh enamored by the fact that here is a team of 12 to 14 women half from north korea and half from south korea who are playing together despite a communications gap because there were definitely communications issues going on they speak different languages in both parts of korea but the fact that they're willing to play together, they want that. And I think in a different way, we get that with that, that what you're talking about, that sense of common ground. They're playing a game that they're equally respected because they're doing this together. It's competitive, but they're doing it in a way and competing in a way that is respected and honored. And the film does a really fantastic job of showing that. There's no, like you mentioned, there's no ill will. There's a real sense of respect and I think more than anything, that's that's probably a strong uh, a stronger word I, I can use to describe not only the Americans towards the Russians, but the Russians towards the Americans as well. Um, before we get into our connecting points, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the the technicals, some of the real life stuff. And I wanted to first say this: the first time I saw Miracle, one of the things I noticed was Al Michaels and the the Olympic. Of course, all the choreography, the, the 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 ice skating sequences, the hockey games, were probably some of the most fantastic choreographed sequences I've I've seen in, in a sports movie. But to hear Al Michaels, current Al Michaels, 2004 Al Michaels, calling the games as we're seeing them, this montage of, of games, and then hearing during the the final moments of the U.S. Russian hockey game hearing his voice transition from 2004 Al Michaels to 1980 Al Michaels to hear the original, do you believe in miracles? That's what got me standing up and cheering. Like I, that's when the tears started flowing for me. I was like, Oh my gosh, they actually used the real Al Michaels from 1980. And I remember reading about the fact that they had originally wanted the current Al Michaels to do, to recreate that, but they knew that he couldn't, they didn't want him to try to recreate that moment. And so they were able to, clean up the audio enough to where they could seamlessly uh, move into his original 1980 voice. And so for that first moment, I felt like I was actually watching this on television as, as an audience member sitting at home in my living room. And, and I thought that was, that was a great thing. I'd never actually heard that done before. And I thought that really created a real sense of immersion into the, in, in the movie. Super cool choice. I, I agree completely. And I, I didn't know to be honest, I didn't notice it. I mean, I, I I knew, I thought Al Michaels was actual dialogue the whole time. I I had to actually look it up because I was like, is this really Al Michael? Like, is he really like just re? Is he recreating this, or did is this exactly like being played back from the, you know, the actual telecast? Yeah. And so, so yeah, I thought that was an awesome choice as well. And this this director, um, it's. Gavin O'Connor, and he's not a big household name, but what I didn't realize is that Gavin O'Connor also directed a couple other films that I really like. One of them is The Accountant, and the big one is Warrior. Did you know that? I did not know I that. Didn't, I did not know that. A film that both of us absolutely love, yeah. another sports film that's not a biopic, but gets me doing the man tier thing. So 
that's pretty cool that we now have these two different sport-related films for that same guy. He's doing Suicide Squad 2, by the way, so I guess a little hope for that. Maybe he can bring it out of the muck. I don't know. I mean, hey. Maybe not. We like him. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, but another another choice that he made, Patrick, was not to cast actors. This is the biggest choice he mm-hmm. made in that the vast majority of the skaters and the, the ice hockey team themselves were various players, coaches, team managers, people that were in the ice hockey world. They were not actors, and he did that specifically because he wanted the action on the ice. He wanted them to be able to play hockey first and act second. That is a daring decision, which we have seen backfire in other cases. As recently as this week, a movie opened called 1517 to Paris, and it is getting just bashed by critics. I haven't seen it, Um, but it's a Clint Eastwood movie, and he did the same thing. It's a real-life story of three American soldiers, friends who were off duty on a train in France and ended up thwarting a terrorist attack. But he chose to cast the actual people. And I feel like the difference here is that in that kind of film, they had to carry it emotionally for the entire length of the film. Those three guys are the leads, and they're not actors. And from what I understand, they couldn't handle that weight. Whereas in this film... It's Kurt Russell's movie. All these guys have to do is react and bounce off of him and be supporting and then give us some of the best on ice dynamic filmed action I've ever seen. In fact, I think I like watching this movie more than I've ever liked watching an actual hockey match. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And I think what it does for me from a from a visual point of view is it it's it's the equivalent to watching something like Rocky and getting the cinema aspect of a boxing match versus watching something like Creed where you get a, a more of a mix of what's really what, what a real boxing match looks like and more of a cinematic. So there's, there's two ways to look at it. We can look at it as, as if we're watching a hockey game or we can look at it as if we're on the ice experiencing these, moments with the players and that's what i enjoyed most about this these sequences is that we got to see we got these cuts these camera cuts uh following ice skates you know following these hockey hockey skates down the ice we saw close-up shots and slow-mo shots everything felt like it was trying to tell a story instead of just giving us really cool hockey sequences it really elevated the emotional impact that the story has by giving us incredible choreography you couldn't do that with actors i mean you'd have to have stunt doubles the fact that these guys had hockey backgrounds gave the director and creative team a big advantage in terms of being able to i mean he could just i mean i'm sure there were coaches on hand to say okay what i want you to do is exactly what herb brooks was doing on the uh you know on the on the glass of like saying, okay, you're going to go here and do this and that. Okay. You're ready to go. Okay. Let's go. I feel like there were actual coaches on set doing that between takes and saying, here's what's going to happen. You're going to skate here and it's going to do this. And they were actually, I I would think they were actually running plays, you know, running hockey sequences and, and doing those things. And I'm glad that, that that was chosen because I think you're right. He had, the director had enough 
confidence in Kurt Russell to carry the film that, like you mentioned, all they had to do was react and, uh, and, and it pulled it off really nicely. And one of the really neat things is that in the end credits, you know, a lot of times with biopics, they'll, they'll show like real life pictures of a person versus the portrayal, the actor who portrayed them, you know? Mm -hmm. And in this one, they do that same kind of thing, but they show the actors slash actual hockey players and they show like where they went to college or what their job is. So you'll see like University of Minnesota assistant coach, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I thought that was really cool. And one of them, uh, Buzz Schneider, the guy who played Buzz Schneider, he was portrayed by his son, Billy. Oh, that's right? cool. That, that's, that's so cool. Like, can you imagine like just being a, like a hockey player in college or something? And like, you get to all of a sudden go be in a movie by Disney and be your dad. <laughs> that. That's really neat. It's really Th cool. This movie, this movie makes me feel as much as any we've seen in in a long time. I got such a kick out of that that the closing credits, and you mentioned offline. The, Dream on. What a great choice of music. Um, but I noticed that most of these guys, if not all of them, had one of two jobs: either they were coaching or in the hockey profession of some kind, college or, or pro, or they were in finance. I mean, you look at. I saw that too. <laughs> like, this is what happens when you play hockey. You end up doing something in finance or in hockey. So just know that if if you're ever dreaming of a hockey career, if it doesn't pan out, you're gonna do one of those two things. According to according to these guys, I was so tickled watching that. So funny. <laughs> oh man, it was so good. Um, well, do you have anything else before we move into our connecting point? No, I don't think so. I think for once we've actually covered everything. That's awesome. Well, good good deal. Well, as you mentioned, I, our connecting points are exactly the same. I don't know that we uh, that we could really go with anything else other than this. And and I think for, for both of us, we could only sum up the scene as again, 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 again. <laughs> below the whistle, Patrick. <laughs> I can't. I don't have a whistle to blow. It's it's late here, and I can't do. I don't want to wake up my son. Um, so this scene actually took place, like a lot of the scenes that we we fell in love with. And the thing is, that the director he filmed this scene over the course of I think a couple of days, in order to get this mentality into these players slash actors to understand the weight of the situation. So when we see them exhausted. They're not faking it. They have been running these drills for like 12 hours, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And of course, you know, these are these are hockey players, so they're used to this drill. It's not like these are guys like you and me trying to act like we're hockey players trying to act tired. So they didn't have that. Herbies. They actually are called Herbies. Yeah, they're called now. Yeah, Herbies. So um, the way this moment was set up we get that glimpse at the very beginning of the film that the United States was facing this crisis of confidence that president Carter called it. Uh, the economy was awful. People were losing their homes or jobs. And as a nation, we felt like we lost, uh, or at least we hadn't won the, the Vietnam war. I mean, it's a big stain on our, on our country. Uh, if you wanted to fill up your car with gas, you have to wait on, uh, you have to go on certain days and wait in a very long line. Nixon was, quitting the white house and disgrace. And then these, you know, Iranian revolutionaries were storming the U S embassy in Tehran and they captured 52 Americans holding them hostage for like over a year and a half. And so we dispatched these soldiers to try to free them and the mission failed and that killed eight of our troops. So there was all this stuff happening leading up to 
this 1980 uh, Olympic uh, event. And this scene completely summarizes the whole point of the film. It does a great job at showing a country that needed something to believe in, something to get behind. You know, we were in the middle of this Cold War, Russia was the enemy, and we were this country in crisis. And much like the moon landing in 1969 that brought hope at the end of a decade that saw a huge amount of tragedy, this hockey game was more than just a game. It was a chance to get behind a group of individuals representing this diversity of the United States and support them as they represented us. Uh, We needed something good to happen. (laughs) And the miracle of the 1980 Olympics gave us just that. And it really started when this scene took place. This was the moment that individuals became a team. And it, for me, summed up what the movie was about. Yeah, man, I, this this was everything for me. And I, I literally just when I was writing notes down, I'm just I'm just scribbling as fast as I can quotes. There are enough motivational and inspirational quotes in this one scene to fill a book um, by Coach Brooks. And it's a perfect culmination of the very first time he gets the team together on the ice and they are all fighting with each other. And, you know, he's they're, they're just they're having they're having it out. They're not. That's another thing, by the way, that wasn't quite true. In reality, all the team came together pretty quick and unified. But in that awesome scene, he asks some of them, he says, you know, where are you from? And one of the guys says, you know, University of Boston. And one of my favorite lines in the movie is um, when Ralph Cox says, well, I'm Ralph Cox and I'm from wherever's not going to get me hit. Right. Yeah. And it, but this is this. There's a reason. And as a film, I feel like that's such a great piece of filmmaking because you take kind of a humorous moment that at the same time is very clearly showcasing. We're not yet together. And you pair it with this scene where the whole point is to get them to understand that they're together. And he says so many things in the scene, man. The name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the name on the back. Get that through your head. Win, lose, or tie, you're going to play like champions. This cannot be a team of common men because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. I was in tears in this scene before we even got to the final, the final moment. And when, when he asks him, who do you play for? And he says the United States of America. And Coach simply says, that's all, gentlemen. I lost it. I, I lost it. I paused the movie because I needed a minute to take it in. That's what this film does. That's what it captures. And that is the feeling that these men had on some level, probably a hundred times as strong in order to be successful and to go forward and do what they did. This had to happen. And not this specific act, right? We can't state that. But what came of this act by Coach Brooks and this moment, this 45 minutes with the lights turned off, this is when they became that team. And it's when I connected with them and was able to then go through this experience emotionally. And so absolutely the only possible choice for the connecting point. <laughs> it's good stuff, man. It really is. Um, before we finish off, I want to just ask your 
candid take. Uh, did you have a favorite player? Did you connect with a particular player? Um, or did you just Ralph? Because he doesn't want to get hit, and because he's in it for the girls, man. Like, if I'm gonna play hockey, I'm I don't want to be hit either. It's not good, and I'm just there. It's not because of the mustache. You don't like the mustache. I'll no, I'll do the porn stash too if that's what it takes. But like, no, I I, uh, I really liked Ralph Cox, and I I don't even remember his name, but yeah, the guy I think it was. Would you say it was O'Clanahan? Mm-hmm. It's Irish, um, but I liked him a From lot. From Boston. O'Clanahan mm-hmm. from Boston, who called the... Because I just felt for him, you know, like, for somebody to almost lose out on that shot, and it, I just, I, that whole moment was very important. Yeah. Because I can't imagine getting that far. And I, and it felt like that was a, a scene where, that's a, that was a time where Coach Brooks was realizing, listen, I was that last guy to get cut, and I didn't get my shot, even though I felt like I earned it, my place there, and I'm not going to let that happen to him. Yeah, So that's for sure. Yeah, I think the two guys that stood out to me were um, Rizzo, Rizzioni, and uh, and Jim Craig. I thought I thought they both had some really great, uh, just isolated moments. Uh, Jim Craig, especially, got a little bit of backstory on him about his family, his mom and dad, and um, and of course I I played a little roller hockey in high school, so I felt like I could connect with him as a. I tried a couple times. You did. I remember. Yeah, was, I remember those it was days. Cool. It was cool. Yeah. I my problem is still same problem I have now with skating. Man, I can skate. I can skate just fine. I cannot stop. <laughs> That's why there are walls. Or I know, but that, that doesn't that work you. in sports. <laughs> no, no, you can't just run into people. That's what I did. It's, and therefore, you could not be Ralph because <laughs> it might get you killed. <laughs> I still remember your goalie days. That was, that was so much fun. I still have yeah, my gear fun. somewhere. I just probably stinking up, yeah, whatever. But I can remember. I can, I literally can see you as clear as day in my head with your Anaheim Ducks jersey and your hockey. <laughs> Those were fun times, your man. Big gloves. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. It was so much fun. Oh. Well, listeners, that about wraps it up for us. We appreciate you listening as always. If you want to continue the conversation, you can always do so with us individually. You can find me on social media at Shoeless Patch S H O E. L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Be sure to at me so I can be sure to respond to anything. Uh, I like to be tagged and stuff since I'm not as much of a social media butterfly as my counterpart. So be sure to, if you want to connect with me about this movie or anything else, uh, those are the ways that you can do it. We've got a busy few weeks coming up uh, for the show. Connecting with the Classics, Episode 2 is being covered at Casablanca on February 16th with special guest Josh from the Science Fiction Film Podcast. That'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to listening to that one. And then uh, soon after that, we have Black Panther on February 20th with returning guest Emmanuel Noisette, E-Man's Movie Reviews. If you don't know who that is, you need to check that out because he's got some good stuff going on there. I'm looking forward to that conversation with him as well. Aaron, what about you? Me too. And E-Man is the guy. If you are into blockbusters, if you are into the Marvel movies, comic book stuff, all like he that is his go-to world. He is the knowledgeable source. Go there. Like go forth and be amazed and entertained because he's got you covered. And so I'm excited to have him on for Black Panther as well. Um, for me, if you'd like to find me on social media, you can do that all over the place at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find me using the social media Twitter account for Feelin' Film at other things like our Facebook group where I'm extremely active and we would love for you all to come be a part of. 
Last couple announcements are that we are cutting off the nomination period for our Feelers Choice Awards on February the 14th at midnight. So you've got until the end of your Valentine's Day to come join the Facebook group, click on that link, and make your nominations. Otherwise, you're not they're not going to be considered. We're going to go ahead and create that ballot here in the next week or so, and then that'll be put out also to our Facebook group, and they will be voting on this, this second annual round of Feelers Choice Awards. The other announcement is our February Donor Pick episode. Our patrons, our supporters, we love you. They voted this month. It was a pretty fun sight to see in the Facebook group. There's always some really interesting discussion around these po- these uh, posts, Patrick, mm-hmm. where we're putting out the choices. We have some, some patrons who tend to lose and their choices never get picked. And this week or this month, there was some collusion <laughs> and there was some pooling of the resources, I will say. To the point where there are eight votes left to be counted, my five included, and I was trying to hold off because I wanted to see if I could make this thing closer, and I just can't. There is a runaway winner. <laughs> it is the Emma Stone Ryan Gosling movie, so that's okay. Crazy Stupid Love will be our February donor pick episode at the end of this month because so many of you chose it that nothing else had a chance unfortunately um (laughs) or fortunately however you want to look at that i'm excited to cover that one i know you love steve carell as well i love steve carell i haven't seen this since becoming kind of big fans of all of these actors so i'm really interested to see what my take on it is now and it's going to be a lot of fun it's from the creators of this is us so you can't go wrong with that right (laughs) no Well, Aaron, thanks for a great conversation. I'm really glad you enjoyed Miracle, and uh, hopefully we can continue this trend of loving movies, which, you know, it shouldn't be a problem because, you know, it's our show and we can pick what we want, right? Um, Absolutely. (laughs) But until next time, everyone, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.